brother is better, hadn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brother Bill. Well, I have enjoyed your hospitality. It's been overwhelming. I speak for Debbie. We, uh, we just, uh, it's been such a good trip. The Lord has blessed us, and uh, we really, uh, I know now I have brothers and sisters in Oregon. I can say that we love you, and uh, we pray for you. And uh, maybe you can get down to South Georgia sometime. When it's real cold up here, come on down there. <laughs> you enjoy it. Uh, and so, but uh, I thank you for your, Debbie and I both, we thank you for everything. And uh, we'll, we'll keep you in our prayers. Our, our church, your brethren in Albany, we'll do that and you pray for us. All right, I want to talk to you a little bit about gospel repentance. If you look at the passage that Brother Norm read, 2 Peter chapter 3, gospel repentance. Now, sometimes uh, we, uh, when we talk about repentance and uh, what all it involves, what it means scripturally, we need to understand that you can't talk about repentance without talking about faith. You can't talk about faith without talking about repentance scripturally. They come together. They're both gifts from God. Neither faith nor repentance are things that we uh, well up within ourselves or bring within ourselves because in spiritual death we don't have that capacity. Now we can do a lot of things even in our spiritual death. We can do a lot of religious things and we can appear to be certain ways, but we cannot uh, express faith in Christ until God gives us faith. It's the gift of God. And He does that through the new birth under the preaching of the gospel. And the same thing with repentance. One man said that, God, that faith in repentance is like a piece of paper. You've got two sides and you'll always have two sides. One of the things that I believe we're taught here in our passage, which mainly is verse 9, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Now Peter is speaking specifically of God's promise that Christ will return. Yes. He came the first time to put away sin. He'll come the second time without sin. And He'll come to gather His church <coughs> unto Himself. <laughs> The Bible says he'll come as a thief in the night. Now that doesn't mean it'll be a secret rapture. What it means is he'll come when you least expect it. That's all that means. There's no secret rapture. He's coming in the clouds with trumpet sound Amen. to gather his people unto himself. A very public thing. And so he's coming to gather his people, but he's also coming to judge the world. To reveal. That judgment is declarative. And so he's not slack coming uh, concerning his promise. Unbelievers, the scoffers that Peter mentioned here, are those who would say he's not coming or he will come by now. That, but God's time scale is not like ours. You see, and that's why he says a thousand, uh, a thousand years, uh, a day is, is like a thousand years to God and a, and a thousand years as one day. Time doesn't mean anything in the nature of God. He never changes. He's infinite. So as we look at our watches all the time, God doesn't look at His watch. He's determined beforehand what's going to be done. He knows right now the exact day that the Lord is going to come. We don't know that. 
And it's foolish for any of us to try to figure that out. We just know He's coming. Amen. We're to live in anticipation that He will come every, any day, any time. Before this message, maybe. I don't know. But I know He's coming. And what our concern ought to be is right here. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. He's not waiting for anything. He's not waiting for a temple to be built in Jerusalem. He's not waiting for the Jewish nation to become obedient. They never have been obedient. And they never will. God has a spiritual people whom He brings to obedience. And that's who Peter's talking about here. But is long-suffering to usward. Now there's your key. Who is the usward here? That's God's elect. How do you know that? Well, just, just flip over real quick to 2 Peter chapter 1. And listen to what he says. Simon Peter, verse 1, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That's who he's talking to, believers. And over in 1 Peter chapter 1, he, he mentions them in this way. He says in verse 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the foreordination of God. The Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, that's God bringing them to faith unto obedience of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. That's, this is written to God's people. So over here in 2 Peter 3.9, he said he's long-suffering to usward. Now what does that mean? God has an appointed time that is specifically marked out for his people. And he's going to bring them into the kingdom of God. Some of the old commentators used to say, when the last one of the usward is brought in, that's when Christ is coming again. Amen. And who are the usward? Well, God's not willing that any, any of them, should perish. But that all should come to repentance. Now what does that tell me and you? We ought to know something about repentance. Shouldn't we? One old writer said that, how do we get to repentance? Well, we don't get there. God gives us repentance, and he brings us to repentance by way of faith in Christ. Faith is turning to Christ. Repentance is turning away from everything else. Everything else. And so he calls this the day of the Lord, verse 10. The day of the Lord. The second coming of Christ. When I uh, began to hear the gospel with the ear of faith, one of the first funeral messages that I heard Brother Mayhem preach had a four points to it. Four words. Life, death, judgment, and eternity. And he said we all have a life to live. We all have a death to die. We all have a judgment to face, and we all have an eternity to spend. And it was one of the best funeral messages I've ever heard. I've used it myself in funerals, and even in just preaching messages. But the day of the Lord is the day of His second coming, and it also refers in that context to the day of judgment. And you know that truth, the truth of judgment, is very disturbing to unbelievers. Unbelievers. 
They either totally deny it, not desiring to be held accountable to anyone at the judgment, or knowing that nothing but righteous people will be judged worthy and live forever in the perfect, glorious world to come. They seek to define righteousness on their own terms rather than God's terms. What will you plead at the judgment? What will be your reason in answering why you should be brought into glory? What ground will you stand upon at the judgment? And the fact is this. There's going to be a final judgment. Now it's a sure thing. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. It's coming. And it's true that the only ones who will pass the test or the requirement or the measure of judgment are righteous people. Did you know that? If you're not righteous at the judgment, what's the consequence? Eternal damnation. That's the absolute and certain promise of God. And not only is the Lord going to keep His promise, He's not even slow or reluctant to keep it. No delay. All is going according to God's plan and God's purpose. Everything's wrong. It, listen, in God's eternal mind, everything's happening just on time. At the right time. But many want to take this verse when they say God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. They want to portray God as some kind of a reluctant dictator. Reluctant to bring all of this about because he doesn't want to condemn anyone and he wants everyone to be saved and he's trying to save everyone. And their view of God is that he's a sentimental deity who loves everybody, who's doing his best to save everybody, but he just can't because you won't let him, so he's waiting, delaying. And that's not the God of the Bible. It's not the case. This, this verse is teaching that God has a people whom He's going to save without fail. And the way He does it is by bringing them to repentance. He's going to bring them to repentance. Of whom is this verse speaking? As I said, He's speaking of God's elect. People who've been given to Christ before the foundation of the world. Who've been redeemed by the blood of, the, of Christ. Justified by His righteousness imputed. And they'll be born again and brought to faith in Christ. They'll be brought to repentance, given the gift of repentance. How do we know this is the case? Because God says it. God says they'll all be given. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. They're the beloved of God. And if we're to follow the Lord's command, commandment here, when he says, like in verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. That's global warming. <laughs> the earth shall also and the works thereof shall be burned, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? He sets the stage, doesn't he? What is it that we desire? Peter said this over in, over in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. How are we going to do that? 
is by being confirmed in the Word of God. Think about it. God's not willing that any of them should perish, but all should come to repentance. Have I repented? Have I been given the gift of repentance? What is repentance? Well, let me begin this way. First of all, let me talk to you about the need of repentance. Even the necessity of it. Turn to Luke chapter 13. It's clear that the Bible teaches us that without repentance, sinners will perish. Isn't that right? Listen to what the Lord says in Luke 13. Luke records this. He says in verse 1, There were present at the season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate, you know who Pontius Pilate was, Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, they were killed as they were going to sacrifice, these Galileans. Pilate had them killed. We don't know all the details of this, but we know they were slaughtered. These people were slaughtered going to perform acts of religion. And so verse 2 says, And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, people say, well, you know, if they hadn't been great sinners, that wouldn't have happened to them, you know, that kind of thing. Well, listen to what the Lord says. I tell you, nay, no. This didn't happen to them because they were greater sinners than everybody else. But except you repent, you shall likewise perish. You religious people. You know, we can look at the drunks and the drug pushers and the immoral people. We can readily see they need to repent. But what about the churchgoers? What about the religious among us? Do they need to repent? That's what Christ is saying here. What do they have to repent of? Their evil thoughts about God. Their evil thoughts about salvation and how God saves sinners. Here's a person going, going to church thinking that God's going to bless them for their works. You need to repent. You see what I'm saying? But look on, he says in verse 4, Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Now that's what we call a natural disaster. It's what the uh, insurance companies call an act of God. It's kind of like when the, the hurricane, I, I, I think it's Katrina, came through New Orleans. And I heard all kinds of false preachers going on TV and talking about all oh, that wicked New Orleans. Oh, that, that was so wicked. That's why God did that. And here's what Christ says. He says, suppose ye... Those who fell in that, that tower, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? And he said, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Do we need to repent? I quote another verse all the time. I want you to see this. Look at Acts chapter 17. This is Paul preaching on Mars Hill to Greek philosophers and religionists and he preaches unto them the unknown God the God that they don't know and this is the case if you don't know the true God of the Bible 
You don't know God at all. And he talked about how the Gentiles were left to their own auspices for the most part. And how God looked over that. He, in other words, God didn't bring His wrath down upon the earth and just destroy the whole mess. He says it this way in verse 30, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now he's talking about the preaching of the gospel going out into the Gentile world. And the preaching of the gospel is a preaching of God's commandment to believe and repent. And he says, to repent. And here's the basis and the issue of repentance. Look at it in verse 31. How, why do I need to repent? What do you mean by repentance? In what way do I need to repent? Look at it, verse 31. Because God hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, in that He hath given assurance unto all men, in that He hath raised Him from the dead. You see, repentance can only come in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. That's what it's all about. It's God's purpose to bring all of His chosen people to repentance through the preaching of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why the Lord said, Luke 15, 17, let me just read you these verses. Christ said, I send you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. Luke 5.32, Christ said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Think about it. John the Baptist stood and faced the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he said, bring, their, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. So is there a need for repentance? You bet there is. Repent or perish. Well, here's the second thing. What is the nature of God-given repentance? I believe that Acts 17.31 passage speaks volumes there. Many have confused notions of what repentance really is. A lot of people, they'll say repentance means you feel sorry for your sins. And you feel sorry enough to reform, reformation of conduct. Now let me say this. That will accompany repentance, but that's not repentance. That's right. Just feeling sorry for your sins. Unbelievers can feel sorry for their sins. Feel guilty. In the Old Testament, the word repentance is a change of direction of life and walk brought about by a change of heart. And it's not just veering off. You're headed this way and you veer off. It's a 180 degree turnaround. You're walking north, you go south, or south and you go north. In the New Testament, the word means a change of mind. It literally means a change of mind. Now that doesn't mean that some preachers say, well, this is more than just a mental thing. Well, yes, it is. But it still means a change of mind. It's a change of mind brought about in Holy Spirit conviction that reaches the inner man, the new man, that which God has given us, a new heart. It's a heart work concerning issues of salvation and a right relationship with God by His grace in Christ. 
And as I said, it's a gift given by the power of God to all of His people. Repentance is a God-given, God-worked change of mind. It's the product of the new heart that God gives us in the new birth. And the Bible tells us if left to ourselves, our own natural hearts, our own natural wills, we will not repent. Not this repentance. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. So it's a gift from God. The Bible says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 30 where it is preached that the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree. I believe this is Peter's message. Him God hath exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. The gift of repentance. And repentance comes from God-given, God-wrought faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, it's that 180 degree turn. Not just veering from one doctrine to another, or from one church or denomination to another. Not just reformation of character and conduct and habits. It comes with God-given faith in Christ. And faith is the gift of knowledge revealed and taught by God in His Word that we cannot deny. It's a conviction. And I've always said this. I've I've mentioned this several times. If the Holy Spirit convicts you of the truth of the gospel, of how God saves sinners by His grace through the blood and righteousness of Christ, you cannot ignore it, you cannot deny it, and you cannot leave it. Amen. Amen. Faith and knowledge and trust. It's not biblical to say one has faith but has not repented. Nor that one has repented but has no faith. And why is this so? Repentance is a new way. Think about this. Repentance is a new way of judgment based upon God's judgments in His Word. Repentance comes in light of judgment. Think about that Acts 17 passage again. Repent. Why? Because God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained in that He hath given assurance unto all men and that He hath raised Him from the dead. What is that telling me? If I think that God is going to receive me into His eternal glory based on anything but the perfection of righteousness that can only be found in Christ, I need To repent. I heard a man say one time, he said, well, he said, I'm not perfect, but I'm not, I've not done anything bad enough to go to hell. You need to repent. Who's it? What is the standard of judgment? The righteousness of Christ. If you think it's anything less, if you think that God's going to going to say well done thou good and faithful servant based upon your works your love your efforts your sincerity huh you need to repent to enter heaven's glory I must be as righteous as God's son I don't find that in myself but I find it in him My only plea, Christ died for me. 
Repentance has to do with how our judgment of who God is and what He requires. Somebody says, surely, surely God will accept my works, my goodness, my life, even though I'm not perfect. You need to repent. You're worshiping an idol. Any God, think about it. I don't care what you call it. Any God who will accept and receive anything less than the perfection of righteousness in Christ is an idol. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, you've turned from idols to serve the true and living God. How does God save sinners? By His grace, His free, sovereign, undeserved, unearned grace. Through the righteousness, the blood of His Son. Anything else and anything less is idolatry. You need to repent of your idol and turn to serve the living God. Isn't that right? Repentance has to do with our judgment of ourselves and our sins. My friend, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I have no claim upon God, His blessings, His benefits, except that which He gives me by His grace through the blood of Christ. I'm telling you this. Here's, here's, here's how it is. If God were to judge me right now, me standing behind this pulpit preaching His Word, based upon my goodness or my efforts or my works, I would be damned forever. Lord, if Thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, who would stand? I'm in need of His grace every second of my life. No part of salvation, not any way, not any stage, not any degree is conditioned on me. If it were, I would be damned. If you think that you could do better, you need to repent. You need a change of mind, a change of heart. Look over at John chapter 16 with me. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in conviction. And the Lord says in verse 7, talking to His disciples of John 16, He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. That means it's necessary that He go away. Now where was He going? Well, He was going to Jerusalem, yes. He was going to the cross, but they weren't going to stop there. He was going to the grave, wasn't going to stop there. He was going to be raised again. He's going to the Father as the Redeemer of His people. The surety, the substitute, the Redeemer. And so He tells the disciples, it's necessary for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. What is the Holy Spirit's work? It's to apply the resurrection life of Christ, the spiritual life, to His people in the new birth. And here's what Christ is saying. If I don't do my work on the cross, if I don't redeem you from your sins, if I don't accomplish and establish righteousness for the people, there'll be no life. No life to give. So the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I'll send him unto you. And when he's come, he will reprove, he will convict or convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now who's the world there? It's the ones who are convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
Now look at the standard here. He'll convict us of sin because they believe not on Christ. Believe not on me. Sin can only be measured by the glorious person and finished work of Christ. Anything less is sin. Verse 10, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. How did he go to the Father? As the one who established righteousness for his people through his death on the cross. That's the righteousness that I need to get by at judgment. And then of judgment, he says in verse 11, because the prince of this world is just. What that's saying is that he convicts, convinces God's people that God has already, now listen to this, God has already judged me for all my sins in Christ on that cross. Somebody said, well, you're saved by grace, but at judgment, God's going to measure your works and pass out rewards. No, that's not scriptural. The only judgment we'll have to face is a declarative judgment where God reveals to the whole universe who we are in His Son. And that's it. That's issues of repentance, you see. Our judgment changes in repentance, our judgment of who Christ is and what He accomplished in His death. Not only the constitution of His person as God manifest in the flesh, but also His offices and His surety and substitute and redeemer. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me show you this. And this really helped me on this issue. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> and look at verse 14. He says in verse 14, the love of Christ constraineth us. Now I believe what he's talking about there is Christ's love for us. Hearing His love, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. You know what that's saying? Literally it says, if one died for all, then all have died. Whoever Christ died for, they died with Him. And if they died with Him, they'll be raised again with Him. Romans 6 teaches that. So this is our judgment. That whoever Christ died for, they died with Him. Whoever He was raised for, they're raised with Him. You see, that's an issue of repentance. If you think those who die and perish, that Christ died for them, you need to repent. But go on in verse 15, he says, And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, from this point on, from the time that God opened our eyes and granted us faith in Christ and repentance of dead works, we know no man after the flesh. We don't judge these things of salvation by what we see. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we Him no more. Think about Paul the Apostle before he was converted. How did he judge Jesus of Nazareth before his conversion. He judged him to be a blasphemer. He assessed that this was a false prophet. That Christianity was a false religion. But when God opened his eyes, his judgment of those things changed. 
The, the one whom he assessed and judged as a false prophet now became the Lord of glory, his whole salvation. That's repentance. Paul, read Philippians chapter 3. That's one of the best examples of faith in Christ and repentance of dead works. Remember what Paul said? We're the circumcision. Talking about spiritual circumcision of the heart. We worship God in the spirit and rejoice or glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And remember he said all those things that he used to judge as being pleasing to God. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Pharisee of the Pharisees is touching the law, blameless. But those which I used to think recommended me unto God, I, now I count loss. I judge as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus my Lord, of whom I suffered the loss of all things. Everything I used to put in the profit column, now I put in the loss column. And everything I used to put in the loss column, I now put in the profit column. That's repentance. Faith in Christ and repent. He said, I counted but dumb. That's his judgment now. That I may win Christ. I can remember when I first began to listen to Brother Mayhem preach. I didn't want to have anything to do with the God that he preached or the Christ that he preached. But God changed my mind. <laughs> he brought me to faith and repentance. And we change in repentance, our judgment of saved and lost changes. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't mean that we set ourselves up as judge and jury or that we can know for certain everyone who's saved and everyone is lost. But God has changed our standard of judging what salvation is and what it means to be lost. That's why Paul says, we know no man after the flesh. Somebody says, well, I look at this person and they're so kind and they're so sincere and they're so generous. And those are all things that we all should be. But without Christ, now here's where repentance hits the fan, so to speak. Without Christ, it's all sin in the eyes of God. If you don't believe that, you need to be brought to repentance. In order to be accepted with God, it must be perfect. I don't have that in myself or anything I do or think or say, but I have it in Christ. Amen. He is my perfection. Amen. I'm washed in His blood and clothed in His righteousness. And then lastly, when God brings us to faith in Christ and repentance, you know it becomes our whole way of life. We walk by faith in Christ, by the grace of God, knowing that we're saved and secure in His grace. His blood, His righteousness cannot be condemned by the law because our sins are not charged to us. We have His righteousness imputed. We have the motives of grace, love, and gratitude which is implanted in our hearts by the Spirit of God. Serving God in newness of life. Warring against the flesh by the Spirit of God. We live and walk in the knowledge that if God were to mark iniquities, we wouldn't stand. Lord, don't let us go. We run the race of grace looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We follow Him in His Word, now fighting that warfare of the flesh and the Spirit in a godly way, even though imperfectly in ourselves. We seek to glorify God, not ourselves. 
And we promote godly sorrow over our sins. God brings us to be sorrowful. We pray, Lord, let our lives be consistent with Your grace. Change us. Not in order to be holier or better or to earn more or to be righteous, but because we already are in Christ. You see, He's changed our minds. He's changed our hearts. He's changed our way of living. Everything about us. Because He's brought us to faith in Christ and true repentance. And that's, in, and that's to enable us in His grace of preserving us to persevere in that faith. The faith of God. All right.